right. So last week we started our series through Luke. The journey has begun. And if you missed last week's um, um, sermon, I encourage you to go back and, and listen to it. It's on our, on our website. Just click on resources, sermons, and the series for, for, for Luke, and you can find it there. It's the only one there, so you can't, you can't miss it. Um, it's the only one there for Luke. Uh, so it's up on our website, and it'll give you a good foundation of what's to come in, in the Gospel of Luke, as well as even for this morning. So I'm going to help just give you just a little bit to, to help us put, uh, uh, have a good foundation as we look at our passage this morning. Uh, Luke, in it, boiling it all down, Luke was written for our certainty, for our confidence, for our confidence and certainty, for our trust and our faith, a greater faith in the Word of God, and a greater faith in the, in the gospel message in particular, who Christ was and who He is. So for our faith, our belief in the gospel is, is not just a leap in the dark, it's not just a, 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 a leap in the, in the darkness, but our faith is infused with sufficient evidence, evidence that is reliable and true and, and good for us. So it builds up our confidence and our certainty. And so Luke, the writer of this gospel, as well as the book of Acts, he is carefully, he is intelligently, systematically, systematically and intentionally laid out for us and for marvelous Theophilus, the glorious work of Jesus Christ and the gospel. So there's a quick introduction and a recap of where we were last week. There's more, like I said, on the site. All right, I want to ask you to do something for me. But before I ask you to do this, I'm going to preface it with this, that this is not a confession hour, and I don't want to embarrass anyone, but here we go. This is what I'm asking of you. Have any of y'all, right, I'm just going to be able to see it by the look of your face, so don't shake your head, I'm just going to be able to see it. Have, have any of y'all ever done anything? Have you ever said anything? Have you ever forgotten anything that no matter what, how long ago it was, you ever done any of those particular things that you wish you can just have a complete do-over? Like you just did something, said something, forgot something, that you're just, I mean, almost maybe instantly you're like, did I just say that? All right, some of y'all see that look in my face on Sunday mornings when I'm preaching. Um, you're just like, did I really just say potty or toilet or stuff like that? What is that? Is that Lydia? That's, that, see, that's something she'll wish she'll take back one day. Um, no, so, so I'm, I'm not going to share with you any of my embarrassing moments because I have plenty to talk about of, of those things, of how uh, I've did something stupid, embarrassing, or just hurt someone's uh, feelings. Uh, and I'm not going to ask you all to, to share any of those. Uh, maybe throughout the years we will have opportunity to laugh at each other in that way. Um, there's certainly a lot of grace there. And I hope you extend me grace when I say dumb things um, out loud. Um, uh, let's see. So our passage this morning, though, uh, with the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, 
sort of does the same thing. When we have Zechariah, I think he says what he says, and then afterwards he's like, did I really just say that? And I think it's one of those things where the rest of his life he just kind of wishes, why didn't I see this? Why didn't I, why didn't, why didn't I just believe this? Why did I do these, do these things? And so certainly there is something that we can relate to this man Zechariah in the story that we are going to have today. But there's a big difference between our little stories that we have, all the many that we may have, or maybe it's just one or two that are just sticking out. The difference between our story and Zechariah's story is poor Zechariah, his story has been recorded in the Bible for all eternity. And guess what? Yours isn't. Right? It's not everyone that gets to read the, the story of Kelly when he said that dumb thing to Violet. Right? Or to, to Lexi or something like that. Or we said, I say the dumb things to my wife. Right? No. No. Poor, poor Zechariah. He is in the scripture for all eternity. And, and so his, his failure is totally different from, from our failure in, in that way. But what we want to see today as we look at this story is the unbelief that he, that he expresses or that he shows. And so I want to talk about unbelief this morning, and then I'm going to, I'm going to put it together with unbelief in the sovereign promises of God. Okay, unbelief in the sovereign promises of God. So let's define unbelief. Unbelief is whenever we do not believe, trust, or have faith in the promises of the Word of God. So when I say unbelief, this is what I'm saying, that we are not, we don't have, we're not believing, we're not trusting, we're not putting our faith in the promises that the Word of God clearly tells us that we can put our belief and faith and trust in. And so at the root, I think, I think the, the very bottom of, of all sin is this root of unbelief. All sin, I believe, comes from unbelief. We, we fail to remember the promises of God or what God has proclaimed to be true in His, His Word and so therefore we, we sin. It's when we would rather trust our own logic, we would rather trust science, we would rather trust our feelings and our emotions, our flesh, instead of trusting in what the Lord has to say. What the Lord has to say where, where we will be safe, we will be comforted, where we will be saved, and where we will be satisfied. And so then unbelief from that point, right, from that very root, then, then spreads out. Like, like a tree, right? It just spreads out and it manifests its way in so many different ways. It manifests its way in, in, in sinfulness, sinful behaviors, and, and disobedience, and fear, and anxiety, and doubt. And the list can just keep going. And it spreads from, from all of those things as well. So let's look at our passage this morning. And I want us to look this morning as we see his unbelief and yet still the sovereign promises and also his grace, God's grace in this, in this story this morning for us. So let's look at our Bibles. Luke chapter 1, and we're going to start reading in verse 5 this morning. We'll go to 25. In, those, in the days of Herod, king of Judah, Judea, there we got two mistakes already, there was a priest named Zechariah, of the division of Abijah. 
And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside the hour at the hour of incense, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell on him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayers have been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before them in spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the, of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to, to wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am old, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe in my words which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remaining mute. And when the time of service was ended, he went home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. For five months she kept her to herself, kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in these days. And he looked on me to take away my reproach, among people. Amen. So we begin Luke, and after the prologue last week, we get into the narrative, the story, where we can start gaining certainty in the Word. We hear before us what we've read is the foretelling of, of the birth of John the Baptist. And next week we're going to talk about the, the forebirth, or the foretelling of the birth of Jesus Christ. We kind of would expect that maybe Jesus should be first here, wouldn't we? We would think that maybe that, that Jesus would be first and maybe John would just kind of be a footnote to the main event. But there's a reason why Luke starts first with Luke, where Luke starts first with, with John. It's because these stories are meant to be read in parallel together. And next week we're going to cover the parallel, how they, how they parallel together in, their, in their, their similarities and also their apparent differences. Luke is also the only gospel that actually talks about the foretelling of the birth of John. 
It's pretty awesome. Pretty awesome. Pretty great detail. So we have two characters introduced to us this morning. We have Zechariah and we have Elizabeth. Zechariah was a priest. And Zechariah was a priest that lived in the country. He was a country boy. Right? In the hills of Judea. That's where he lived. Right? And he was a priest in this area. Right? And so he was a, a priest. He was one priest of probably around 8,000 other priests. So all of, all of Israel, right, and all the, the Jewish religion in this area in Palestine, there was about 8,000 priests, and he was one of 8,000. We're pretty insignificant among all the priests. He wasn't a priest in, in Jerusalem, but in the country. And there were 24 divisions of all those priests of 8,000, probably around 300 priests per division. And each of these divisions served at least one week a year in Jerusalem. They would travel to Jerusalem to help out in the sacrificial system and all the sacrifices and the offering of incense and all the things that took place every day in the temple. From Sabbath to Sabbath, they would, they would serve. He was part of the eighth division of Abijah. There's really no significance there except for, except for Luke is giving us that detail once again so that if we had the access, we could look back to the records and see Zechariah being in the eighth division of the priesthood of Abijah. Zechariah's name means the Lord has remembered the Lord has remembered. Pretty prophetic name, an appropriate name for this brother. His wife was also a descendant of the priesthood, a, a daughter of, of, of Aaron. And her name, Elizabeth, means, my God is an oath. My God is an oath. Notice the significance of both of these names. My God will remember. My God is an oath. What do they point to? They point to the, to the faithfulness of God. They point to the, to the promises of God, the sweet promises of God. And verse 6 describes for us more of, of who these two people are, this, this couple, is that they are righteous before God. They are walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the statutes of, of the Lord. So not only is he a, a, a priest, is Zechariah a priest, and they both have priestly lineage that they could trace back, but, and they have meaningful names, but in the meaning of their names, they were a people that, that lived righteous and blameless before the Lord. It does not mean that they are sinless, but rather they trusted in the Lord, and they sought to know God above all things. They lived humbly before the Lord, not needing anything else but to be satisfied in Him and Him alone. To know His law and to obey. Now this is a rare quality. This is a rare quality among the priests. It's a rare quality in Israel. It's a rare quality in, in Israel at this time. That's why he, he stood out before the Lord in such a way. Because it is so rare. It's a rare quality in our day and age. It's a rare quality in, in, in our day and age. 
It's a rare quality to find, find qualified men to be elders of the church that, that love the gospel, that love the Lord, that are righteous and blameless and that are called before God. But Zechariah and Elizabeth, in a humble state, in the country, older but faithful, stood apart like beautiful flowers sprouting in the garden of Jewish religion. Stood out. Pow. And this couple that dedicated their lives to, to, to a life of faithfulness before the Lord. I mean, I, I can only just imagine just the, the happiness in their home together, a lifetime finding joy in, in, in the Lord. But the story tells us something else about them, that there was something deeply missing in their relationship and in their home. Verse 7 reveals to us that, that aching disappointment and pain that comes from infertility. They were unable to, to have a child Elizabeth was, was, was barren. She was unable to have a, have a child. And I'm sure to them, they knew, knowing the, the Word of God, knowing the Old Testament devoted to it, that there was some comfort among them, knowing the Old Testament, that they were in good company when they thought of Abraham and Sarah and Jacob and Leah and Hannah and from 1 Samuel. They must have been, felt a little encouraging in, in that way, but for, for the women, including Elizabeth, the shame and the disgrace that they must have felt because they were barren. You see, Jewish culture believed that infertility was a disgrace and even a punishment for sin, that God was bringing punishment upon your household because of something you have done, and God's disciplining them. Can you imagine that pain? A lifetime of that, of that pain, where everybody thinks that you must have a skeleton in the closet somewhere. Now, they may be not be able to point it, but there's got to be something there that maybe they're not addressing, that they cannot see, and yet in their souls they are stirred into such anguish and pain because they're like, Lord, we have done everything before you right. Why does it seem that you would hold back? they have never experienced the joy of holding their own child. But the dawn of that darkness was about to break. So back at the temple, the priest, he was chosen, they went to his, his division, went to the temple, and every day there were two services of sacrifices, and during the time of sacrifices, as they, the priests were sacrificing, and, and sacrificing the grain and the animals and things like that, another priest who was chosen by lot, meaning they, just to put it in our vernacular, they just rolled dice, and whoever's number came up, providentially, by the hand of God, that's what they believed, they would be the one, that was the one that God chose to come and offer the incense. And they would go into this place. And so there's Zechariah. The honor finally fell to him. No priest was allowed to do that twice. Once you were chosen to go once, you never could go back and do it again. And since there were 8,000 priests, only one is chosen twice a day for every year. Not every priest was chosen. So here is, here is Zechariah, his whole entire life. 
up to old age, faithful for the Lord, living righteously before the Lord, never making it to the show. Never making it until this day. Until this day, his lot came up. The dice rolled in his favor. He was honored and chosen to go before the Lord to offer the incense before the Lord so that the, as the sacrifices were made, they would be a fragrant offering before the Lord. What an honor that he must have felt. What a joy that he must have felt that day. I, I, can't, I cannot imagine, but brother, he was probably saying, I can't wait to tell Elizabeth. I've been chosen, finally. Something good has happened to this country boy, right? He's excited to be a part and to go and serve the Lord. And so as that moment came, he's ready to go. He's dressed up in his, in his uh, Jewish priestly gown to go and to offer the incense. He's stepping forth to go through the curtain of the holy place. And as he opens up the curtain and goes through his eyes, just imagine the first thing that he sees. Is he sees the curtain right in front of him of the Holy of Holies, where God himself dwells. He looks in front of that, and there is the, there is the table where he would offer. To his left was the, was the table of, of the showbread, to, and to his right was the, the candlestick, and the altar before him where he would offer the incense. And there he stood preparing to purify the table so that he would can offer the incense to the Lord. And the, the, the thousands of years that they've been doing this, the symbolism that was, that was before the people each and every day and before the priests every day, that they were acting out or in this moment about ready to be revealed. And there he is, doing his thing, making sure he gets it right. Filled with joy. An old man about to have a heart attack when the angel Gabriel appears. So you know how when you're intently working on something, right? I mean, you're just like phone, you know, focus, boom. No, you can't, you can't even see what's around you, but you're, you're working hard. You're looking, and all of a sudden someone sneaks up behind you and kind of taps you on the back, or, or all of a sudden they then see you in the peripheral, and, and what do they do? They... What do they do? What do they usually do? They kind of, ah, they're scared, right? And so can you imagine this, this very sight? They're in there. He's in there doing his thing, and then before you know it, he is scared half to death. Now, I think that's one of the rules that you're not supposed to do to old people. You're not supposed to sneak up on them, right? Because you don't want to hurt them. And this is what the angel Gabriel does. He reveals himself to Gabriel. He stuns him with fear. And of course, greater fear than just like my kid sneaking up on me. Right? It's the, an angel. And we don't know how he revealed himself. We don't know if it was just kind of person to person or if it was a great light. It doesn't say. But he reveals himself and he is stunned. He was, he was stunned. You know, the angel Gabriel first showed up in the scripture in Daniel chapter 8. In Daniel chapter 8 and, verse, and chapter 9. And there in those chapters in Daniel, the angel Gabriel uh, uh, announced to the, uh, the prophet Daniel the revelation of a future messianic time. The future messianic time that would, that would come. And here he is, he comes back, scares Zechariah half to death. But the signal there to us and to the world is that it is the dawn of the messianic time. 
It is the dawn of the Messianic time, that the coming of the Christ, that he was coming. So what, what does Gabriel say to Zechariah? What was foretold? Well, the, the Lord's message from Gabriel was three things. Number one is do not fear. Don't you go dying on me, Zechariah. Do not fear. Your prayers have been heard, and your wife will bear you a son. Everything that Zechariah have ever wanted and has ever desired has now been proclaimed to him, foretold to him by an angel of God. Do not fear. His immediate need, right? His immediate need that he had because of the supernatural power that was before him. And I think his fear was a fear unto death. It was such a supernatural power that it knocked him down. Complete humiliation. And yet it is, do not fear. And here is a promise. It's a promise that is, I think, also transferred to us through Christ in the, in the gospel of do not fear, that if we are in Christ, what have we to fear? Secondly, he tells them, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Now, we, we may think, we want to go to the idea that maybe his prayer was about having a child. That maybe is, is Zechariah thinking his prayer has been heard and Gabriel saying, no, we're going to give you a son. And that comes. But what I think he is saying about his, his prayer is that the offering that you have just made before the Lord for the people, that God would redeem Israel. Brother, it is coming. God has answered your prayer. Now, the reason why I know that is because the verb tense in Gabriel's message shows us that. That it's the prayer that's referring to what he has prayed as he is making an offering. That the redemption of Israel is coming. A prayer that was frequently made for Israel and is now being answered. And can you imagine... That here's Zechariah, that now the two, the redemption of Israel and having a child are inseparably linked. And you will have a son as the third proclamation. And you'll name him John. And John means God has been gracious or God has shown favor. So here it is, Zechariah's prayer for grace and favor for the people of, of, of Israel with every offering and sacrifice that has ever been made points to the need that they have for, for, for grace and redemption from, from the law of God. It's now becoming made known. And then underneath that personally for him, his wife will have a new spring a glorious gift that will come to her. Time must have stood still for him. Time must have stood still as the angel then began to describe what his son was going to be like. I mean, John isn't even conceived yet, and Gabriel already knew him. And Gabriel's telling him, he, and he'll say, you will have joy Verse 14, chapter 1, you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord. I mean, how much joy could it be for a parent and maybe even a pre-parent 
They hear that your child would be such a blessing to the people around you and the inner strength and the inner goodness and greatness of your son would be that kind of blessing to all people and God would be pleased and glorified by his life. What a joy that must have been. I couldn't think just basic, just really practically applying that as parents that this needs to be our motive for our children, that our greatest joy and desire and satisfaction is for our children to glorify God and to make much of Him. Because there's nothing in this world, as much as we want so many good things for them, but there's nothing in this world that will satisfy, that will bring joy, than to live devotedly to the glory of God. Nothing. He also tells them he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. Completely unprecedented. Completely unprecedented. And such an important detail for us to to understand because of its prophetic outlook and and what it foreshadows for us now in, in, in Christ. That John was made holy by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and through his devotion to holiness and to righteousness to the Lord his commitment to the Lord. Now, we're not John. We're not born with the Holy Spirit and dwelt in us. The circumstances are not the same, but as, the, as we become Christians, as we become saved and born again, as we say it, the Holy Spirit then indwells in us to sanctify us, as he did for John. So we pursue holiness, as John did, because the Holy Spirit lived inside such a mark of a believer. That is a mark, an evidence of a Christian. So if they're indwelled by the Holy Spirit, then they are becoming holy. They're becoming sanctified. They're becoming more like Christ. What does the ministry of John look like? He says, it says, and he will turn many children, oh, uh, many children of Israel to the Lord, and they will go before him in the power and spirit of Elijah to turn their hearts and their fathers and the children in the disobedient and the wisdom just to make ready the Lord, a people prepared. Gabriel in these verses was quoting, excuse me, from Malachi chapter 4, the very last book of the Old Testament, the very last words of the Old Testament before all prophecy would cease and God would be silent for over 400 years. Gabriel is quoting right here, the forerunner, the one who would come before the Christ would be like Elijah and come in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn, to bring about repentance to fathers and children, those who were disobedient, to bring them to wisdom and to be through justice. Such a likeness in their ministries between John the Baptist and Elijah. And he comes with a new message, preaching a, a message, a gospel of repentance and reconciliation before God to prepare the people for the man to come. A message that would revolutionize everything, a revolutionize that will completely change human relationships as well. It brings now the gospel message that brings about a a revolution in the relationships that are found in the church that perplex the world. But then Zechariah opens his mouth. Zechariah opens his mouth. And he, I think, passively, aggressively says, doubtingly, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man, 
and my wife is old too. How? Now, we want to be hard on him. Maybe. But he doubts. He's fearful. There's pride in his unbelief. But I want you to notice in this story the doubt of Zechariah I think should be in a sense a blessing to us. And it shows that number one, the people of the Bible are people too. <laughs> like us. I mean, underneath all that, I mean, what, what a great evidence once again that the Bible is actually God's Word. Because if this was written by men... These are the kind of stories that they would omit. They would take these stories out. Right? If, 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 if I'm going to write my biography, that's called an autobiography, right? Autobiography. I'm going to write my autobiography. I'm going to leave out those embarrassing stories that I don't want to tell you just like you don't want to tell me. But we see all the faults and failures of all the men here. But it points to the great grace of God. It points to His great mercy so that we can have confidence in His grace. We can be certain of His grace. And so Gabriel responds and reacts, I think, pretty quickly to Zechariah so we wouldn't say any more stupid things. And as he says, Zechariah, I'm Gabriel. I'm an angel. I stand in the presence of God. And as I was sent to speak to you and to bring you good news, and behold, you will be silent until unable to speak until the day of these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. I think what Gabriel is saying here is you can't lie to me. I mean, even in your questioning, you're, trying, you're kind of sounding like, well, I just need some more evidence. And I think you're demanding in a way because you are doubting, because you're prideful. And guess what? I stand before God. Like, the one who knows everything, the, the one who has invented truth, I stand in his presence and I've been there all eternity. You can't lie to me. You can't lie to the angel of God. And so this unbelief that he expresses, and I think all unbelief, all unbelief, including his unbelief, is a rejection of, of the truth. Right? I mean, that's what he says. I mean, Gabriel says, you're rejecting the good news that I have for you. I mean, I just told you, Zechariah, the greatest things ever that could happen to you, and you doubt. It's a rejection of truth. It's a rejection of the good news. It's a rejection of the gospel. And so his unbelief was disciplined, I think, with a, a fitting penalty. A fitting discipline, sitting punishment. And so here he is, comes out of the temple, unable to speak. The people start to take the notice. Uh, why is this guy lingering? What's taking so long in his, what's going on? So those who have been around, they know something's not right. He comes out. And usually the priest that comes out, they're supposed to come out and proclaim a blessing over the people that God has accepted our, our sacrifices. The incense has gone up. God is pleased. And the people go, yay, 
we're forgiven right before we, amen. Right? They're, they're good. And something's not right when the priest does not come out and proclaim that. And so he goes home. He goes home. And all that that he wanted to tell his wife couldn't. Imagine how excruciating is that? Would that be? How weird would that be? Difficult that would be. The communication that they want to. I think they eventually probably worked it out. You know, bought some sticky post-it notes and things like that, and you know, stuck it all around the house and and stick it on each other's forehead. Probably, you know, like, what'd you say? And here they are. He's home. He hears this, and as verse 24 tells us, God fulfilled His promise to them. And I think he already knew that God was going to fulfill his promise after he became deaf and mute. Right? And I say deaf because in, in chapter 1, verse 62, I think, it says that they also wrote signs to him, too. I think he couldn't hear as well. And in verse 24, God fulfilled his promise where the laws of nature said no. God said, I'm sovereign. I wrote these laws. And she conceived. And therefore we hear Elizabeth in verse 25, Thus the Lord says to me, What the Lord has done for me in these days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach among my people. What a beautiful statement that is. So I think there's two main, two main things. I've already introduced them this morning. What I want us to see from the passage, what I think this passage underneath and, and, and overarching really shows us, is I think it shows us a pattern of the sovereignty of God and how God and his, gives these sovereign promises to his, to his people, and then it's our response. And I, and I put down that his, what's a, a proper response, a proper response to, to God's promises, but in, maybe in some way you can kind of put how not to speak to an angel, right? or how not to respond to an angel. But, but our responses uh, are proper responses to the, to the promises of God and, and, and how to battle on unbelief. And so let's, look at, let's think about together the sovereignty of God in this, in this narrative and in this story. So it's a theme. This is a theme and a doctrine that we love. It is a doctrine that we can never overdo. We never can overdo this. We can be certain of the sovereignty of God. And I want you to see that in the history. In the, in the, the narrative, right? So not just in the, the, the theological teachings that we see in the text, but also in the narrative of the Bible, that God is sovereignly working all things out in history, that He is the main actor in history. He has worked all things out for His glory. That is the big picture. That is the big picture. We, so we, we did Hosea last time, right? Last couple well, months ago now, it seems like. And in Hosea, we see prophesied this, this coming, this Messiah, where God was going to reverse the exodus. He's going to make things new through His Son, where death will finally be, will be put to death. This is the big picture that God is acting, that God is moving to bring about redemption to His people. And it's like all of a sudden, God saying that this is the time. And He pushes the button, execute, launch the mission, go, angels, go. God is working. God is acting in all of 
history, in all of our lives. God is acting and working and sovereign over His people. I mentioned that Malachi chapter 4, He spoke and Gabriel quotes that verse. And then there's 400 years of silence. Not because God needed a break. Because God is sovereign. God was working. God was working. He mentions Herod. Herod was a terrible king. Herod was a wicked king. I mean, we would not. We were picking all the times of, of who would be in charge during the birth of the Savior. It probably wouldn't be Herod because he wasn't so great. He built this temple, but he built it to make himself look good. He was wicked. And then there was the, the Romans who oppressed his, God's people. But God, in his sovereignty, knows. And he brought about, as it says in the Bible, at the fullness of time, God sent his son. He's sovereign over all history. He is sovereign over His people. And brothers and sisters, He is sovereign over our lives. He is sovereign over all of our lives. And we talked about the casting of lots. They rolled the dice. I don't want to put too much onto that. I don't want you deciding where you're going to go. to. Well, you're not going anywhere to lunch today. You're staying here. But where maybe you go out to eat tonight by rolling dice. I mean, you can, but don't decide the things that are alive that way. But the reason why they did that is because God was sovereign. They knew that whoever wanted to be, God was providentially going to pick it. And don't you think that it wasn't, God didn't just pick the day and say, oh, it just happened to be Zechariah that day that rolled the dice. No. God, providentially, the whole life of Zechariah, wondering every year that he would show up to the temple, God, is it going to be me? No. Disappointment after disappointment after disappointment. And then getting old and saying, I'm never going to get picked. Why would they pick an old guy from the hill country? God was sovereign. God was buying his time. And the reason why God can do these things and God can control all things is because he is sovereign because he knows what's going to happen because he has ordained what's going to happen. And then we can talk about Elizabeth. God was sovereign over Elizabeth's infertility. Her greatest hurt, her greatest disappointment, her greatest pain. God hearing his daughter each year cry out, God, when? God said, I'm sovereign. Trust in, trust in me. God is sovereign over every detail, every pain, every suffering in our life. We, we don't know. We're so finite. We're only here in this moment. But God has already gone before us, brothers and sisters. We can trust in that, that no matter what comes our way, that God has orchestrated it for His glory and for our good so that you would find a greater joy in Him. He is sovereign and rejoices in His sovereignty. So then when we are suffering, when we see a loved one suffering in pain, 
They can say, God, I don't understand. But what I do understand is you're sovereign. And so you're, the pain that I'm seeing here and your goodness are not opposed to one another because you are sovereign. And I can rejoice in that. And you're always good. Suffering. Suffering, brothers and sisters, always has a way of creating some of the greatest works of God's glory. That's one of those statements you should be writing down. (laughs) Suffering always has and always does its greatest work in creating the greatest work of God's glory. It always does. Look throughout Scripture where brothers and sisters, apostles, even the Son of God in their suffering, even John the Baptist himself in their suffering created some of the most glorious works of God's glory. And the joy, the unique joy that it creates in a believer is profound. It can only be described as We're finite. We don't know why certain things happen. But the Lord does. He is sovereign and He is good. We trust in Him. We may not understand. We may may never understand. It may be a lifetime of hurt and pain, but the Scripture continues to tell us to have faith, to, to lean in, to trust in God, that He is working out all things for His glory. In His sovereignty, He has given us through His Son the forgiveness of our sins and adoption as sons. He has given us grace. As we read this morning, grace upon grace. And just like Zechariah and Elizabeth, when they were barren and fertile, there was lifelessness, there was dryness, there was death in the womb. So were we outside of God's sovereign grace. For only He, in His sovereign will, brings life. In His time, to His glory, and for our joy. So there's, there's our first step, the sovereignty of God the promises of God and sovereign promises. How do we respond then to, 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 the, to His promises, to these sovereign promises? Well, it's not unbelief. It's faith. It's, it's, it's leaning in. It's not doing what Zechariah did. Or the many times over and over that we have. But unbelief is just so easy. It is just so easy. It was, for, it was easy for Zechariah just to say, I don't get it. Can't happen. I mean, I mean, I, I quit praying about that years ago, Gabriel. Even though he should have believed. I mean, of all people, right? I mean, wasn't Zechariah a priest? Acquainted, well acquainted with the scriptures, knew about, you know, that this is how God sometimes interacts through through divine interventions? that he brings about miraculous births of, of Isaac and Samson and Samuel. Didn't he know this? He was a priest, not an atheist, 
I mean, and, and then just think of the moment he was just there. He was at the temple. He was offering a prayer in the temple on the most important day of his life. I mean, of all times, God would show up? Maybe. And then, the obvious. That was an angel before him. The supernatural was there. I mean, four things right there that he should have believed and should have seen as evidence to not doubt. Unbelief is easy. Even, even when confronted with so much evidence, it is so easy. It is so easy. But we need to give grace. As we give grace to one another in our unbelief and in our sin, it's so easy to give into that, to that, to that flesh. Because belief and fighting temptation and battling unbelief can be some of the hardest things to do in our life. Some of the hardest things, even with the best and the greatest evidence before us. And I think that's the tension of faith. That's the tension of the, of the fight of faith every single day, that despite the obvious, the Word of God and the sovereign promises before us, that, man, unbelief is just easy. And sometimes it just feels more comforting to go there than it is to go to God, because if we know if we're going to go the way that God wants us to go, we've got to walk through some pretty hard stuff. So it's easy just to go back and to be a recluse and go back into our homes and sit on the couch. We think that's where the comfort is. But it was God. But it was God who gave the power for Elizabeth to conceive. And if we doubt that, if he doubts that, if God can't do that, how could he ever raise Jesus' dead body from the tomb? I want you to see that just like Gabriel wanted Zechariah to see unbelief is real. And it's easy. We know it. And our unbelief, it subverses, subverses the whole gospel. Our unbelief, our sin, it, 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 it subverts the whole gospel. It says, I'm number one. I have a greater uh, authority. I have a greater pride because that's where unbelief is rooted in. It's rooted in our pride. It says that my logic... My thoughts, my feelings, my desires, my flesh, they supersede all the authority of Scripture in our lives. Or, as some people like to do, my obedience to the Scripture is predicated upon my own authority. Because I am my own authority. Unbelief is rooted in pride. Unbelief is easy, but unbelief can be unrooted by sovereign promises. It's what we believe. It's what we need to believe. It's what we need to hold on to is the sovereign promises of the Word of God. It's what we need to hold on to tightly when everything else is, has, has let go. I'm gonna, I just want to share one really easy promise. Maybe you should write this down, because it may be the only one you might know. 
one sovereign promise that you can hold on to. And it's a really easy one. It comes from an easy place to look in the Scripture. And I think one, before I get there, one of the reasons why we don't hold on to sovereign promises is because we don't know sovereign promises. we got nothing to hold on to. So unbelief is easy. But how we unroot it is we replace unbelief with sovereign promises. And this is coming from Romans 8. Right? I told you it was easy. Romans 8. Right? The climax of the New Testament. Romans 8, verse 37 through 39. You could probably find 50 sovereign promises in Romans 8 alone. And here's one right at the end. Chapter 8, verse 37. It says, No, in all things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Why are we more than conquerors? Because of Christ. Because of the sufficiency of His work on the cross and not yours. We're more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure of this, right? There's certainty there. For I am sure of this, that neither death or life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That means nothing. What is here on this earth, what is supernaturally in the world that we can't see, that Zechariah had a chance to see, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ our Lord. That is a sovereign promise. Are you doubting the love of God? Replace that doubt with this love. Are you doubting your salvation? Are you tempted to sin? Put this promise in there. Brothers, write this on your heart. When you want to look at the computer on things you should not be looking at, write this on your heart. When we are tempted to fear, when we're tempted to be anxious, go to the Word of God that says that you are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. It's not your power. It's not your strength. It's His. We are conquerors because He has conquered for us. Right? It's like the supply train that went behind Patton in World War II. They couldn't really claim the victory, but they walked through as conquerors. He did, they did the work. And know this. Unbelief is not the end. That our unbelief is not the end. We do not do die, just die in our unbelief. It wasn't the end for Zechariah. Praise the Lord that although we may be disciplined for our unbelief as Zechariah was, God is not casting us away. God is not casting us away. We repent and we set our hope anew on Him, which is what Zechariah did. He had nine months to do so. And so I think these words of Jesus ring true, and we're going to close with this. He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. 
Brothers and sisters, let's believe in the sovereign promises of God. Believe in the one whom he has sent. Let's meditate on these things and let's battle all unbelief with them. And when we give in to our unbelief, let us be quick to repent and have our hope refreshed and anew by his sovereign grace to forgive us once again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our word, for your word that you have given to us. I pray that you would help us to battle our unbelief with the deep promises, the rich promises that you have given us. That we may become more like Christ, that we may have more joy in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.